0: Welcome back to our study of the Gospel of John. In our previous two lessons, we had our introduction to the Gospel of John, and we had the first part of John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 34. Today we pick it up at verse 35. At the end of our previous lesson, we talked about John the Baptist. And how John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Look, the Lamb of God. And we talked about what Lamb of God meant, the connection with sacrifice, uh, the one God Himself gives as sacrifice. Uh, now, John the Baptist is basically saying, My work is done. The one that I'm preparing the way for is here. So, Pick it up at John 1, verse 35. The next day John was standing there again with two of his disciples. When John saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned around and saw them following him, he said, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? He told them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his own brother Simon and say to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Looking at him, Jesus said, you are Simon, son of Jonah. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. There are some things to note, some things that jumped out at me. Uh, First, the, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus gives them a simple invitation. Come and see. This reminds me of something that happens in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Rabbi, where are you staying? Many places. Just come follow. Come and see. This is a lesson about the simplicity of Christian witness. All John the Baptist does is he says, look, the Lamb of God. And then Jesus gives a very simple invitation, come and you will see. And then we see a quickness of of confession. Andrew was one of the two that John pointed to Jesus and Andrew was one of the two who uh, asked rabbi where are you staying? And Jesus says come and see. Andrew runs to his brother and says we found the Messiah. Quickness to confess. You see A parallel to all of this now in the next section with Philip and Nathanael, starting with verse 43. The next day Jesus wanted to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Come and see, Philip told him. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here is an Israelite about a, in whom there is nothing. Truly, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus replied, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, you will see greater things than that. Then he added, Amen, Amen, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of God. So just as we had one brother finds another and invites him, we have it again. Andrew gets Peter, uh, Philip gets Nathanael. And uh, just as Andrew says, we have found the Messiah, Philip finds Nathanael and says, we have found the one that the prophets wrote about. Jesus of Nazareth son of Joseph Nathaniel's answer surprises us a little bit Nazareth can anything good come from there Nazareth was not a big city it was a small town one of those things don't drive don't blink when you drive through it uh, can anything good come from there Galilee uh, was thought of as fringe territory, Uh, the place to be, where the temple was, where the capital was, where the movers and shakers were, was Jerusalem, and then uh, that province of Judea. Uh, Galilee was also called Galilee of the Gentiles. So, being in Galilee uh, might have been part of the reason why Nathaniel says, can anything good come from there? Philip gives the same invitation that he had received. Come and see. Then, we have a miracle, miraculous knowledge, it's not yet called a miraculous sign. That waits until the wedding of Canaan. But Jesus says, here is an Israelite and whom there is no deceit. And he surprises Nathaniel. And Jesus says, before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Under the fig tree, that may be the physical place where Nathaniel was sitting. And then Nathanael's amazed. You saw me when I was alone. You saw me when nobody else did. In the Old Testament, under your own vine and fig tree, that was a figure of speech for talking about relaxing on your own property. That was something that the, the Israelites looked for going to the promised land and then returning to the promised land after the exile to be under your own vine and fig tree. Might this be referring to that? Uh, People who write commentaries also talk about that phrase under the fig tree as possibly talking about uh, spending time meditating on the word of God. That's also a possibility. Uh, We take it at its word, that's probably the physical place where Nathaniel was. He didn't think anybody else knew that he was there, and he was amazed. How did you know? Uh, You saw me when nobody else saw me. And then Nathaniel has his who is Jesus moment. Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel, who is Jesus. And then Jesus, remember as we analyze scripture, as we're looking at it, we think of law and gospel, we think of other catechism connections, we also think of other scripture references that this section we're studying reminds us of. So what about this one? where Jesus talks about, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Does that remind you of anything? Angels ascending and descending on something. Jacob's ladder in the book of Genesis. Jacob was on the run for his life, he had just cheated his brother Esau uh, out of his inheritance and out of his blessing And he's on the run, sets up camp for the night, falls asleep on the ground, and has this dream, this vision of a ladder with its foot resting on the earth and its top going up to the heavens. And then Jacob exclaims, this is none other than the house of God. And he calls the place Bethel or Beth. El, which means house of God in Hebrew. So here in the Gospel of John, we're actually being told Jesus is that link between heaven and earth. Jesus is the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. So that's it for John chapter 1 we will continue with John chapter 2. And so John gives us a little bit of a time frame right after the calling of the first disciples. Uh, there was a wedding at the Cana, at Cana of Galilee, and uh, I would put up a map, uh, but there's a problem. Nobody is exactly sure where Cana was. There are a few places uh, that claim to be Cana of Galilee, but the problem is there are a few places, not just one. Uh, Galilee, we know it was in the north, probably not far uh, from Nazareth because Jesus' mother and his Disciples were invited to the wedding. So let's uh, begin with, with John chapter 2. Three days later there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, Why, Woman, what does that have to do with you and me? My time has not come yet. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Six stone water jars, which the Jews used for ceremonial cleansing, were standing there, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus told them, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did. When the master of the banquet tasted the water that now had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the banquet called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then when the guests have had plenty to drink, then the cheaper wine. You saved the good wine until now. This, the beginning of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Well, first we got to say something about the wedding customs at that time. Uh, at that time, a wedding was not just a single day. It was a feast lasting several days, maybe three, four, five days, a time when family and friends would come together for catching up with one another, feasting, and drinking. Um, And so to run out of wine, that would be a disaster. That also tells us this is why they ran out of wine. That this was a feast that lasted several days. Uh, It wasn't just, it wasn't like our wedding customs where you have a wedding at 2 in the afternoon and then everybody goes to the banquet hall and at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock the bride and groom and the wedding party show up and then you have a meal and then you have a dance and then you all go home. Uh, This would have been several days of eating and drinking, feasting, visiting, celebrating. Uh, So when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine. Some people, some scholars think Mary thought it's about time Jesus shows who he is. And we have a hint that might be the case later when his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. But at the moment, Jesus says, my time has not come yet. Here's a little application. Uh, Even Jesus' own mother, when she asked him to do something, Jesus answered, my time has not come yet. It's a lesson for us about prayer. Jesus, fix this now. Uh, My time has not come yet. We're not told why his time hadn't come. Perhaps because of the nature of miracles, or the reasons behind miracles, to help somebody in need, and also to reveal His glory. Perhaps Jesus was waiting for all of His disciples to be present when the miracle took place. We aren't told that for whatever reason, His time had not come yet. His mother says to the servants, do whatever He tells you. Uh, Six stone jars, uh, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So, 6 times 20 would be 120 gallons. 6 times 30 would be 180 gallons. The standard water cooler jug is 5 gallons, or the standard plastic bucket is 5 gallons. So, Jesus made a lot of wine. 130, 180 gallons, something about the miracles of Jesus and reading these things as a modern reader. Uh, We know what happens and, and why grape juice turns to wine. Making wine is a process that ordinarily takes months. First of all, you have the grapes, and around here, the grapes start to sprout in, well, they start to bud maybe in uh, March or April, and they're ready for harvest in September. And everybody knows you stomp on the grapes with your bare feet, uh, the juice is collected. At that time, uh, there was a first fermentation, and then they would put it in wineskins, uh, goat skins, a goat's skin uh, prepared. The, Legs of the skin would be tied up, uh, and then there would be some permeability of the goat skin, and the, the goat skin would let some of that carbon dioxide, the expanding gases, would leak out, but the, it would be con- it would be preserved from other contaminants. Uh, so months growing grapes, uh, months letting uh, the grape juice ferment into wine. And because sanitation and and things like that weren't widely known at that time, it would be easy for a batch of wine to go bad. Uh, you get the wrong kind of bacteria in your wine, uh, especially if flies get on the wine, well then, it's got the wrong bacteria in it, it turns to vinegar. Uh, that's why at the crucifixion, Jesus is offered wine vinegar. Uh, well, that's a batch of wine that went bad. Uh, so, wine was a process that took months was a lot that could go wrong, and in an instant, Jesus produces 180 gallons of the finest wine. Uh, wine cannot be made like Kool-Aid. Add some powder, add a little sugar, stir it, and you've got uh, Kool-Aid. You can't make wine that way. people have tried to make things that you can make instant wine, Uh, that just does not work. Uh, Jesus makes it in an instant. He reveals his glory. He does something in moments that ordinarily takes months. Uh, uh, Something about the jars, and I suppose this is in the the realm of biblical archaeology or maybe even the the realm of biblical trivia uh, about the stone water jars. Uh, The stone water jars may be an indication that the bride and groom were people who took God's ceremonial law seriously or maybe the caterer, the master of the banquet, uh, took God's ceremonial law seriously. Stone water jars uh, would be known as ceremonially clean vessels uh, because the stone uh, when it cures, when it hardens after it's carved out, uh, it's not porous anymore. Something like a clay jar is still somewhat porous. And if a clay jar is unclean, you have to smash it. That's why uh, at archeological sites they find all kinds of smashed pottery. If uh, a piece of pottery was declared unclean for any reason, it was smashed. Uh, Stone water jars, stone cups, stone drinking vessels uh, would not Be unclean because they're not porous Uh, I've got a picture and it looks like I'll have to exit this for just a moment and this will be on the handout also Uh, this is how they made those stone water jars and you see uh, some Canadian Bible scholar they put a picture of a modern drill uh, But uh, the the principle would be the same. You would have some kind of hole saw. And you see the the different uh, stages of how these stone vessels were made. First you would saw out a cylinder and then you would bore out the center. Uh, and limestone, uh, when it's first cut from a quarry, is more chalky, uh, and then when it's exposed to the air, it hardens. Uh, long ago, I visited Washington National Cathedral, and this was before it was completed, and there were places where they were still building and they had pieces of limestone. The limestone had been cut. It had even been cut to size and to shape. And they left it sit outside before they were going to put it on the building. And the reason for that is that the freshly cut stone has to cure, has to dry out, and that the stone actually hardens with exposure to air. Uh, so, uh, these stone vessels each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Oh, I think of being maybe four feet tall, two feet wide, very large vessels. Uh, Bored out this way. Uh, our Canadian Bible scholar says the center cords cores pictured here were usually discarded but were occasionally made into core cups. So you saw out the core from uh, the large the larger jar or vessel and then uh, you make another one from the piece that you cut out. Let nothing be wasted. That's how those stone jars were made. Uh, On the handout, and on the handout, if you want, look at it on your computer, it's a clickable link about a visit to a quarry that they found where these vessels were being made. So, uh, back to the Bible text. Something that the wedding of Cana teaches us is Jesus cares. Even with things that may not be a life or death situation. It would have been an embarrassing thing for that bride and who to run out of wine at their wedding. Jesus helped people in their need. Even if it wasn't a life or death need. He was there to help. He was there to provide. Uh, We remember the double purpose of all of Jesus' miracles. First, to help somebody in their needs. Second, to show his true nature, to reveal who he really is. Part of that also is to show he has the authority to say things about himself that he's saying. And we see that at the end of the account of the wedding of Cana, Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Last time, last time, or in the introduction, I believe I talked about. Uh, Oh, some of the apocryphal gospels, some of the things that people call the lost books of the Bible, uh, an infancy gospel of Thomas that claims that the, the child Jesus did little tricks with his friends or turned a playmate into stone when that playmate made fun of him. Well, in the Gospel of John here it says, this is the beginning of his miraculous signs. Something we'll see in the next part of John chapter 2 is also about the nature of Jesus' miracles. He did not do miraculous signs on demand when anybody wanted to see one. He did it when his time was right. He did it to meet somebody's needs. He did it to reveal his glory. He didn't always do miracles when he could. He saved them for uh, special times when he could meet somebody's needs and reveal his glory. Uh, So after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother, brothers, and disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Uh, Capernaum is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you picture Galilee the Sea of Galilee is being somewhat egg-shaped. Capernaum is at the top. Uh, and uh, whatever we read in the Gospels about Jesus went up or they went down, it's talking about elevation, not north or south on a map. So the Sea of Galilee is what would be one of the lower parts of the province of Galilee. They went from Nazareth down to Capernaum, talking about elevation. And so now we go from Galilee to Judea, and Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. We would say down to Jerusalem because of position on a map, but Jerusalem was up on the hill, uh, up on the Mount Mount Zion. So. Elevation. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, the Jewish Passover was near. That's important because when we set Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John side by side and we're trying to figure out what happened when. There's a first Passover, there's a second Passover, and there's a third Passover. This is the first Passover. Second Passover is close to the feeding of the 5,000. Third Passover is Jesus' suffering and death. So, the first Passover, Jesus goes and, uh, let's read this account. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and money changers sitting at tables. He made a whip out of cords and drove everyone out of the temple courts along with the sheep and the oxen. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those selling doves he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews responded, What sign are you going to show us to prove you can do these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. Then they believed the scripture and what Jesus had said. While he was in Jerusalem for the Passover festival, Many believed in his name as they observed the miraculous signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, because he knew them all. He did not need anyone to testify about man, because he himself knew what was in man. Okay, Uh, when it talks about Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he was in the temple... Uh, It's talking about Jesus in the temple courtyards. And also in the handout, I have a picture of this model of uh, the temple courts. The temple proper is this small building in the middle. That's where the priests would offer incense and then in the area in the front, that's where the altar of sacrifice would have been. Uh, But then there was this large courtyard. Uh, Later, the Jewish leaders say, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and it was still under construction at this time. And what they're talking about is this uh, large temple courtyard not just the temple itself. Uh, Something about uh, the purpose of the temple and the temple courtyard. It was there to be the center of Israel's worship, but it was also to be a testimony to the nations, people from other nations who would be passing through. Israel where it is it's on a thoroughfare it's on uh, in a place where people have to go through Israel if you're going from let's say from from Egypt to Turkey you got to go through Israel if you're going from Egypt to Persia you got to go through Israel if you're going from Syria to Egypt you got to go through Israel uh, because uh, to the east of the Jordan that's a vast desert and uh, be very risky trying to travel straight through there so going from Egypt to Babylon you got to go through Israel uh, and so as you go through you got to go pick up some more supplies uh, at the bigger cities, or see the sites in the bigger cities. Have to go through Israel, have to go through Jerusalem. So even when uh, God gave his people the tabernacle and the plan for the tabernacle, later the plan for the temple with King David, that outer courtyard, was called the Court of the Gentiles, where people who were not from the people of Israel could stand, they could listen to the teaching, they could hear the singing of the Psalms, they could observe Israel's worship. That was God's Old Testament outreach plan. Uh, Instead of go and make disciples, that's Jesus' New Testament outreach plan. The Old Testament outreach plan was you stay here, you be my people, you worship in this way, that is your testimony to the nations. Instead of being a place where the people could observe true worship, it had become a marketplace. What would people see there? Well, the the main thing they would see would not be the teaching of prophecy, uh, the observation of the sacrifices and other things about their worship. Instead, they'd see buying and selling and dishonest money changing. This is why Jesus overturned the tables. This is not the purpose of the temple purpose of the temple is to be a house of prayer for all nations. But you have turned my father's house into a marketplace. Uh, So back to uh, the marketplace. Uh, Back to uh, the Bible text. The Jews respond to this and say, what are you going to do to show us, uh, to prove to us you can do these things? What miraculous sign are you going to do to prove to us you can do these things? In 1 Corinthians, St. Paul says, uh, Greeks look for wisdom, Jews demand miraculous signs. something about the miraculous signs uh, that I've often thought of. Uh, the passage in Luke about uh, the ten lepers and Jesus tells them, you are cleansed, go show yourselves to the priests. Uh, the miraculous signs were there to point to Jesus' as Messiah. And then some of those things like a cleansed leper has to show himself to the priest, I think that was God's telegraph system. This was his way of showing the priests in Jerusalem, the Messiah has come. Look at all of these lepers now cleansed. That's that's not something that usually happens. So that's God's telegraph system, his way of getting the message to his chief priests in Jerusalem. And then what did the chief priests do with that message? They persecute the one who's healing lepers, the one who's making the blind see. Uh, I mentioned before, uh, it's taken 46 years to build the temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. this explains itself. Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. And then you have a delayed memory and a delayed connection that the disciples make When Jesus was raised, his disciples remembered. He said this. Then they believed. This last paragraph, this last section, repeats something about the the nature of miracles. Uh, Before uh, the Jews said, What miraculous sign can you do to prove you have the authority to do this? Jesus did not perform miracles on demand, Uh, he did them to help people in their need. While he was in Jerusalem, you did other miraculous signs. He didn't do them on demand for the Jewish leaders who demanded them. Uh, and then at verse 24 tells us why. Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them because he knew something that historians and scholars have have told us. Uh, There was a scholar, uh, a Jewish scholar, who was writing for the Romans, oh, sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem until the the final destruction of Jerusalem, between 70 and 120. Uh, There was a, a writer named Josephus who gives us many insights to what was, what was going on in Judea at that time. And Josephus tells us that it was the family of Caiaphas, Annas and Caiaphas, that were running the market in the temple. And so that's one of the reasons why the chief priests were opposed to Jesus, even when he was doing miraculous signs is that Jesus was bad for their business. They demanded miraculous signs. What sign can you do to show us the authority to drive the animals and money changers out of the temple? And he gave the sign of his resurrection as that sign. You're going to have to wait for it. I'm not going to do a miracle for you on demand. Jesus knew them all, he didn't entrust himself to anyone. Um, Also this sets us up for John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says we know nobody can do miraculous signs like this unless God is with him. this part at the end of chapter two, uh, that Jesus is doing other miraculous signs, uh, that's setting us up for our study in chapter three, which we will pick up on next time. So, at the end of John chapter two, who is Jesus? At the wedding of Cana, We see him as the miraculous, the wonder worker, uh, the son of God who helps a couple out with his compassion, with his divine power. Uh, We see him as the compassionate son of God who wants all people to come to God and to himself and to be saved. Uh, That's why he got upset with Temple courts being turned into a marketplace. And in this section, we see who is Jesus? He's the all-knowing Son of God who knows the hearts of all. So we'll see you around, and we'll see you here on YouTube for John chapter 3, probably the first half of John chapter 3 for next week. God's blessings.